All right. So good to be with you. Uh, we're having one last final week in our Sermon on the Mount series before we pause for the Christmas season, and then we'll jump back in to finish the Sermon on the Mount in January. But I don't know if you remember this like I do, but I remember literally a day in 2004 in my dorm room, and uh, I was actually, sorry, I was in my friend's dorm room at Summit Pacific College here in Abbotsford, and he showed me this brand new website that he had subscribed to. And it was this website where you could upload pictures and share them with your friends. And you could set up your own profile with a picture of yourself on there. And you could put up what was called a wall photo, where there was like one special featured photo that you would show people and they could comment on it and, and, and click a button that said they liked it with a thumbs up. And you could, you could have conversations with people and, and communicate with them online. And every day when you logged on to your own profile, you got to finish a sentence that started with, Dave Funk is, and then you would fill in the blank. And I hope most of you know, I am talking about in 2004 when the Facebook, it was called the Facebook, right? When Facebook was launched and college campuses in particular Students started to engage with this new online social network. And now, almost 20 years later, 3 billion people are on Facebook. And it's become this massive thing that spun off into all kinds of other social networking sites, Instagram, Snapchat, Snapchat TikTok, Be Real, many others that have come and gone. And almost 5 billion people globally log in every day to some form of social media. Most people actually have multiple social media accounts. If you're in Canada, you likely have six or more different accounts on different types of social media. And globally, the average person spends almost two and a half hours per day on social media pages or apps. Now, people argue whether social media has produced a net positive or a net negative impact on the world. That's not the point of today's discussion. Now, with all the positives of connectivity that it provides, there is certainly one significant negative consequence that I want to share with you, and that is the death of privacy. The death of privacy. Everyone's life has gone public. Everybody has a public platform, whether they have earned it or not, to share anything they want to share. Pictures of their food, videos of their cat, and all kinds of unsolicited and uneducated advice about anything from medicine to how to tie your shoes, whatever it is. Everybody has a public platform and everybody is sharing way too much information about everything in their life. And it's multiplied by five billion people doing that. And it can be a lot. Now, maybe you don't have much to do with social media. Maybe you're not really engaged in that. But if you're on the internet at all, if you have any subscriptions, if you shop online, if you correspond online, if you browse the web at all, incredible amounts of information about you 
has been mined, collected, stored, and utilized in all kinds of ways, including in targeting advertisements based on what they think about what you need and desire. Sometimes it feels like a thought pops into your head and then an ad pops up for that thought. Have anyone's ever been there? They know what you're thinking, okay? Whoever they are. Now, since that fateful moment 20 years ago in my friend's dorm room, the world has obviously experienced one of the greatest turning points in human history brought on by the public nature of social media and data collecting processes. So it leaves me with the question, is anything a secret anymore? Is anything a secret anymore? Is anything about our lives private anymore? Now, in today's section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually telling us that there should be something that remains private. There should be something that remains a secret and for very good reason. In in the world we live in, this teaching may be harder than any other generation who wrestled with this teaching before, but there is great promise for us if we do. Before we get into it, a quick recap on the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't been with us or if you've been with us intermittently. Uh, Jesus just finished a major section of the teaching talking about righteousness. And for Jesus, righteousness is about relationships. So you can have unrighteous or righteous relationships with people. If the relationship is good, if it's at peace, if things are going well with someone, it's a righteous relationship. You can have righteous or unrighteous relationship with God. If there's sin and, and, and waywardness and you've walked away and you're ignoring and disobeying God, it's unrighteousness. But if you're at peace with God and sin is forgiven and you're close to his heart, it's a righteous relationship. And Jesus talked about the fact that he's not so much interested in external visible signs of righteousness, the do's and don'ts of life, just following the rules. He's first and foremost considered with righteousness of the heart. He wants you to not just to follow the rules. He wants you to have the right motivations and attitudes and reasons. So he says things like, congratulations, you've never murdered anyone. You've technically never broken the law of not murdering people. But if you're angry and full of hatred and violence in your heart, you're basically murdering them in your heart. And Jesus wants an internal righteousness that translates into an external righteousness. So in chapter 5, Jesus gave us all these examples and really uh, talked about how that our righteousness relates with people. But now in chapter 6, he's going to talk about religious righteousness or righteousness with God. What does our righteousness with God look like and how do we foster a righteousness of the heart when we commune with and engage with our relationship with God? So we're in chapter 6 today. And we're going to actually take a big chunk of scripture. Instead of breaking this into a few weeks, we're going to stick with the big idea of a larger section of scripture. But let me just start with the opening verse, make a couple comments, then we'll read the rest of the text. So we're Matthew 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus sets the tone. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So this is setting up the big idea of the passage. Don't practice your righteousness in a way that is a show and just just presenting an external experience to the people 
around you. And, and in light of my opening discussion, how might Jesus rephrase this for certain members of our population? He might say, don't be an Instagram Christian. Don't just practice your faith as a way to create content for followers to like and subscribe and see what you are doing. Don't practice your faith just as a way to show the world how spiritual you are. And of course, the application is far beyond social media, but to life in general. Don't just do your Christian stuff as a way to show off and present an idea of who you are to others. So like Jesus did in chapter five, he gives us three examples. We could actually add examples to this list to break down application further, but Jesus helpfully gives us three examples to tell us what he's talking about. So we're gonna read verse two to 18. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in heaven, who is unseen." Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So we want to focus on the big idea here. Instead of talking specifically about giving and praying and fasting, uh, those are topics we'll, we'll hit later on. But Look at the kind of bookends of this passage to keep the big idea in mind. Let's read verse one again. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. And then verse 18, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then in the middle, he gives the examples of giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. So I want to keep things super simple today with some very basic application at the end, but I'm going to outline this by talking about three words. I want to talk about when, and I want to talk about hypocrite, and I want to talk about reward. First, when. Notice in verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16, Jesus says, when you give to the needy. Then he says, when you pray. Then he says, when you fast. 
Jesus is assuming that his followers give, pray, and fast. He doesn't say, if you happen to give to a needy person, he doesn't say, if you're one of those people who likes to pray, and he doesn't say, if you're one of those crazy people who fasts, he says, when you do these things. He assumes that this will be part of the rhythm of life of his followers. We've talked about this before, how Jesus provides salvation. He died for our sins on the cross, putting faith in him. You receive eternal life, but he also showed us how to live. He showed us a rhythm of practices and disciplines that help us engage in a relationship with God, help us receive and experience his grace in daily life. And these are three of the spiritual disciplines he taught us, giving, prayer, and fasting. He assumes these are a part of our life. It would be the same as him saying, when you breathe, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Now, this far into the sermon, if you've been following, we are well aware that Jesus's concern is not primarily that our external actions need to conform to a certain kind of set of, you know, practices and, 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 um, and actions. The emphasis of Jesus' teaching is not you'd better pray. The emphasis of Jesus' teaching is not, you better give generously. And it's not, why are you eating so much? That's not his emphasis here. His emphasis is, when you are doing these things, when you're doing these quote-unquote religious activities, when you're doing these spiritual disciplines, where's your heart? What's going on in your heart when you give and when you pray and when you fast? Because if what you're doing in that situation is in your heart, you're motivated merely by what people will think about you, the affirmation you'll receive from people, showing off your religious activities for people to be impressed by, Jesus has a word for that. And the word is hypocrite. It's a nasty, nasty word. In each of the examples, Jesus calls out a specific group that he calls the hypocrites. Verse two, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by others. Now imagine this. Imagine you're in the lobby before or after church. You're just chatting with someone. You're holding a coffee in your hand. And all of a sudden, you hear a brass band playing. Right? And you look, and there's been a little stage set up in the lobby over by the giving kiosks, and a banner is flying overhead, and one of the very important members of APA stands on there with a megaphone to yell, just so you know, I just gave a very large and generous gift to the church. This is the, this is the image Jesus is trying to give us. And I don't know if he's using hyperbole here or if this was actually happening, if people were using trumpeteers to announce their gifts publicly. But Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous. This is hypocrisy because that person, their heart motivation is to look good. Their heart motivation is not to be generous, to bless someone and to give as an act of worship to God. Their heart motivation is to get something from people. Charles Spurgeon said, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. 
Verse five, Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. The image here is someone who's just putting on a show when they pray, they get up and, and they, they want everybody to know how eloquent they are. They want everybody to know how many Bible verses they've memorized, so they salt those into the prayers. They want everybody to hear how spiritual they are in their prayers. Later, Jesus says, don't go on babbling as though the only way for God to hear you is if you say a whole bunch of words, like he's, he's waiting for the longest prayer of the day, and that's the one that he's going to answer today. He's, Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's, it's not about that. Now, I think it's funny in prayer, and I just have to be honest because I struggled with this. I've struggled with this to a measure as well. But, you know, we all have our normal conversational way of speaking. And then I think it's funny sometimes when people, they talk normally, but then when they start to pray, they've got this whole new kind of way of talking. It's like as soon as we start praying, all of a sudden it's the 17th century and we're praying in King James English, right? It's like I speak, I'm a 21st century, and then all of a sudden I'm back to these and thousands in my prayer. And I don't want to make a judgment statement because sometimes it's just out of the Bible you've read. But isn't that weird? Like, is that just a show? This is my prayer act because I want people to see how spiritual I am. Then verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show that they are fasting. Fasting is an interesting spiritual discipline. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about it in our February prayer month. But fasting is deciding to give up eating food, and it's specifically food. We talk about social media fast, whatever. Those are good, but that's not what fasting is. Fasting is deciding to give up food, for a certain period of time, so you could focus on prayer and seeking the Lord. And so it's, it's a way of declaring to God that, that he is able to provide a, a kind of sustenance that nothing in this world can provide. No sandwich, no, no Starbucks latte, no steak can, can provide the sustenance that I crave. Only God can. So I'm going to set aside food and seek him only. I also see fasting as kind of a way to exercise your self-control muscle. That fasting is, is you learning how to say no to a craving that you really, really want. You learn how to say no to it and stay dedicated to the Lord. And so it, it strengthens you in a context where if you fail, it's not a big deal. You just, you failed and you had food, not a big deal. But it strengthens you for in a context where you have to say no to a temptation where if you fail, the consequences are dire. And so it's a way to strengthen our self-control muscle. And I think of these three practices that Jesus talks about, giving and praying and fasting, I think in Western modern Christianity, the least common is fasting. And I think it's something that needs to make a comeback, but I think West, because I think Western Christianity has a big self-control problem. And so this is an area, we're going to get to this in February, okay? Now I'm making a promise. This is an area where I think we could do some work. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would have fasted at least twice a week for 24-hour periods, and then there would have been other religious festivals or seasons or reasons to fast for short or long stretches of time, and apparently they made sure everybody knew about it. 
They go around holding their stomach. Oh, I've been fasting and it's been so hard. They wouldn't do their hair. They wouldn't wash their face. They wouldn't iron their clothes. They needed everybody to know how much they were suffering for the Lord. Because for them, fasting wasn't worth it unless people acknowledged their suffering. People need to know how much I love the Lord or else why would I, why would I fast? So Jesus uses a special word to describe people like these three examples. It's the word hypocrite. Jesus is the only one in the New Testament who calls people a hypocrite. Paul uses the word hypocrisy a few times, just generally, but Jesus is the only one who uses it as a noun to actually label somebody. That to me, I think, uh, is a caution for us to not be fast and loose with the word, but Jesus calls these groups of people hypocrites. It comes from a classical Greek word, hypocrite, and it referred to an actor, literally an actor who gets on stage to play the part for the enjoyment and appreciation of a crowd. Actors pretend to be someone they're not. They put on a show for the benefit of an audience, but the show isn't reality. The show is fake. It's not who they actually are. And that's what Jesus says a hypocrite is, someone who's just putting on a show, pretending to be someone they're not on the outside, but on the inside, they're someone else. But they do it because they want the audience to provide them with something. They want some sort of admiration or reward or blessing from the people who are watching. Now, I don't want to speak negatively about people who do this for a living. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But think of the context of what Jesus is saying. You're giving to the needy, but you're doing it not for the needy person and not out of an act of worship for God, but you're doing it so that people will think, wow, what a generous person. That comment is what you're doing it for. You're praying to God, but while you're praying, you're kind of peeking your eyes to see if the crowd is watching and being mesmerized by your eloquence. You're fasting, but you're only doing it so people will think you're very spiritual and very humble and so willing to suffer for the Lord. You're doing these things so that people will think you're great. And the additional challenge we have today is that it is so easy, it is so easy to show off our Christian faith through things like social media. It's so easy, you're sitting at home alone and you've got your Bible open and a coffee in hand and you go, this would be a great post. And you just do a little selfie or you kind of set up, you know, you spend 20 minutes setting up your picture and posting it and six minutes praying, right? It's so, it's, so easy. it's so easy to post a reel about that Saturday you and your friends went to help out at the soup kitchen. It's so easy to just share online, oh, I just did this great good deed today. It felt so good. But what actually is feeling good is the dopamine hit you're getting every time you see someone hit that like button for you. I found a study done on a website, so take it for what it is. It's psychtests.com. They analyzed 12,000 people who took an emotional intelligence test and they compared two groups of people. So one group of people self-identified as um, when they did a good deed, they needed people to notice and acknowledge it and give them affirmation. The other group of people, again, it was self-identified when they did a good deed, they didn't need anyone to notice. They didn't need anyone to tell them, good job or you're amazing. 
So what they found as the people did this uh, emotional intelligence test, that first group of people, the group that wanted praise, it turned out that they were way more likely to be okay with cheating and lying if it helped them get something they want. They were way more likely to think it's okay to tear someone down if it helped you get ahead. They were way more likely to be willing to abandon their values if it helped them achieve success in life. And they were way more likely to change their own beliefs and behaviors in order to please others and be accepted in certain groups. This is what, it's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about. That he saw that there was a heart issue behind this external veneer, this act of doing good works, doing spirituality, doing religious things, just as an act to be praised by people. There's a heart issue going on there. And, and what, what the, that survey shows is that people who are doing this, they're very likely to actually abandon their faith in Jesus if they don't get enough affirmation and praise for their faith in Jesus. And they'll find another thing to believe in if there's a group of people who will affirm them and praise them in those beliefs. So what it reveals is that if that's you, you weren't actually worshiping God. You weren't actually worshiping Jesus. You were using him to get people to worship you. And if God doesn't get you the praise that you need, you'll go find another thing that will get you the praise that you need. Is anyone feeling convicted yet? Because the preacher is. Because listen, when I preach a sermon like this, I need to install a mirror right here between me and you. Because think of the irony of the guy standing on stage telling you the words of Jesus, don't stand up and practice your religious things in front of others to be praised by them. Think of the irony of that. And I, I think it's funny because my kids, uh, they, they don't have the same sort of admiration for like actors and athletes that I did when I was their age. Times have changed with social media. So the kids that my kids admire most, or the people that my kids admire most are now like YouTubers. Any other parents kind of been following this? Like the big stars in their life are YouTubers, which is basically a social media platform where anyone in the world, you don't have to like work your way up. You can just have a platform. You can just have basically a TV channel and say and do whatever you want and people will watch it and follow it. And so that's who my kids follow. And, and they, I, don't, I, think I've tr- I think I've helped them understand that this is not the case. But they, they know that every Sunday I get up here, there are cameras filming me. And this is streaming right onto YouTube. And they're like, Dad, you're a YouTube star. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, there's like, there's literally like tens of people that watch this. Like, <laughs> I'm a sensation. And so as I meditate on this and, and, and need to work through this, I recognize that Jesus himself got up on a mountain to talk to a crowd. It's not so much the fact that you do ministry publicly, but if my only motivation for doing ministry publicly was so that I had dozens of people say, good sermon pastor in the lobby, or because I love the feeling of, of this room filling up because they come to watch me preach. Jesus says to me, you're a hypocrite. So the preacher needs to recognize the potential that if, if I don't have a prayer life during the week that's secret and personal, 
but I show up on stage and pray eloquently on the stage, then I'm the hypocrite he's talking about. So you're going to have to work this out in your own context, what this means. But, but do you only raise your hands in worship on a Sunday because the people around you will notice? Do you only bow your head in prayer here because you don't want to look like you don't pray? You need to work this out in what your own context is. But here's the third word I wanted to talk about. Reward. Reward. Here's what Jesus says about those who practice their righteousness to be seen by others. Verse 2, 5, and 16 all say exactly this. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. It's interesting because Jesus is saying basically it works. Like if you practice your righteousness to be seen by others so that they will affirm you, encourage you, build you up, reward you with thinking you're amazing, he says you might actually get what you want. It, it, does, it does work, but that's all you're going to get. Your, your reward, that, that's it. Don't expect anything from God if what you're seeking is praise from men. Don't expect anything, don't expect any blessing, don't expect any reward from the Lord if your heart is oriented toward what you can receive from the people around you. So the question we need to ask ourselves and I need to ask myself is, am I looking for praise and reward from humans or from God? So you can get your reward from people, but if you want something better, if you want something greater, if you want something more transcendent than what people can give you, then I think we need another discipline that works in tandem with these disciplines of giving, prayer, and fasting. And it's what I like to call the discipline of secrecy. The discipline of secrecy. Let's read, let's read these three again as Jesus describes how to uh, work on this heart issue. Verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 17 and 18, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The discipline of secrecy. Giving, prayer, and fasting are all things that we have classically called spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices in the way of Jesus. And they are essential formational practices as we follow Jesus. They help shape our heart and mind. They help shape us toward Jesus. But Jesus is actually telling us that if we pervert them to be about ourselves, then they can actually become a barrier to our relationship with God. They can, actually, they can actually distance us from God instead of help us get closer to them, to, closer to him. So along with these, I think if we add the discipline of secrecy to them, then we'll be able to see the fruit we are looking for. To learn to pray without anyone ever knowing about it. To learn to give without anyone knowing how generous you are. To learn to fast while looking like you are full. 
to learn to worship and serve without anyone needing to approve and think you're so spiritual and so mature. The result, Matthew 6, 4, is your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, what's the reward? What's the reward of the discipline of secrecy? The reward, Jesus told us at the beginning of Matthew 5, or partway through Matthew 5, because this whole talk about righteousness began earlier in the sermon. And if you remember what he said, I'll read it for you again. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who he often called hypocrites, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But when you have a righteousness of the heart and a righteousness that does not boast, the result is an experience of the kingdom of heaven that grows in measure day by day. And that's the reward. The the reward is closeness with God. The reward is engagement with him, presence, the presence of God in your life, his guidance and direction, his comfort, his peace, his joy, his provision, his affirmation, and eternal glory with him. As we practice the discipline of secrecy. So there's really, the, the application is so simple. And at the same time, it might be the hardest thing you'll ever do. I'm serious. I mean, last week it was pretty hard because we talked about loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, you know, all that, all that really difficult stuff that we all ignore, right? But this week is at the same time the easiest thing and the hardest thing. Because here's, here's what I think we need to do this week. Do something good this week and never tell anyone about it. Ever. Like, I mean, ever. There's, there's no statute of limitations on this. Do something good this week and never tell anyone about it. It only takes a moment to do, but then you have to take the secret to your grave. Do something that only God can see, therefore only God would reward. Like take an unmarked envelope full of cash and not a check because your name's on that, full of cash and put it in someone's mailbox. And then, and then when they call you later and they're like, you'll never guess what happened. You have to pretend you didn't know. And when they're like, who do you think it could have been? This is the only time you're allowed to lie, okay? I have no idea, but what a blessing. And then never, ever tell them. Never. Or, or go on a prayer walk and don't take a picture of the view and add a Bible verse to your Instagram post. Like, just go, just go on a prayer walk. And when people said, what did you do this afternoon? Nothing. And never let anyone know how spiritual you are. Fast and don't complain that you're hungry to your spouse. Don't, don't even mention it. I know it's tough, Elmer. Especially for men. We are whiners when it comes to our tummies. Here's a good one. You might not be able to do this this week. Lord willing, you won't be able to do this this week. When it snows this winter, get up really early and shovel a few of your neighbor's driveways and never tell them it was you. Never. Don't even hint at it. Hey, I noticed your driveway was shoveled this morning. (laughs) 
I want, never met. Do something this week that you take to your grave. And the only thing that I don't like about this is that I won't even get to know if you did it, right? I won't even know if you're kind of, you know, following your pastor's direction. But again, it can be very simple, yet at the same time, incredibly difficult. But do something only God will see so that it is something that only God can reward. We're going to move to a time of communion. I'm going to pray in a minute and, and uh, we're going to head back into our text once we do that. So I'm just going to leave that for a second. But as we move to communion, we want to see what Jesus has done for us. And, and when Jesus was crucified, he didn't do it for a show because literally all of his followers abandoned him when it happened. Like Jesus' heart in this act of righteousness was not to please humans. It was merely to please his father. And his reward was glory. His reward was affirmation of the father's blessing. His reward was resurrection. And he has now been raised to be king of kings and lord of lords before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. See, again, as usual, Jesus already did what he is asking us to follow him in. To lay something down, to give something up that there's no reward from humans. The reward only comes from the Father. So do you take communion? This is for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And maybe today is the first time you declare faith in Jesus. And you can do that physically by taking communion today. It's a reflection of his broken body and his blood poured out on the cross. So after I pray, I'm going to invite you. We have tables up here at the front, as well as a couple stations in the balcony. Whatever's closest to you, come on up, grab the cup that's in there, head back to your seat. The band's going to be playing a song, and then wait there for me to lead you through. But let me pray for you as you come. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending Jesus into the world. And Jesus, we thank you so much what you did. You laid yourself down for us. Not to get a reward from people, but as an act of obedience and worship to the Heavenly Father. So Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the righteousness you give to us as a gift. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would give us the strength this week to assess our own hearts and see where maybe we are putting on an act when it comes to our faith. And Lord, I pray you bring healing to our hearts and help us, Lord, only to, to, to act and to work as an act of service and sacrifice to you so that our reward will come from you alone. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come get your communion stuff. Head back to your seat. I'll be back in a minute. this talk about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. If we, if we read it wrong, it, it could feel like it's adding burdens and challenges. And it's like, man, Jesus's expectations are high. That not only will we live, live a good life, but also have the right 
motivations to live that good life. And so it can feel like, well, what if, what if we're struggling to get there? What if maybe we're in progress, but like we keep failing and messing up and, and having a hard time? Well, there's a solution for that. And it's embedded deep within the Sermon on the Mount. But also if you know what you're looking for, it is flashing with neon lights. And as you read the Bible, it, it, it can be hard to notice sometimes, but the Bible is written very intentionally in ways that are supposed to direct your gaze to certain points. And it, it, it's written with just different structures. Like think about a structure that has parallel ideas and then inside that there's parallel ideas and then inside that there's parallel ideas and it's trying to all point toward a middle idea. And it's just leading you toward this central idea that's flashing and saying, this is what this text is about. And the Sermon on the Mount is actually set up like that. It's, it's called a chiastic structure, if you care, but it's set up to all point toward the very center of the sermon. And so what's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the text we read today, 6, 1 to 18. And the middle of the text we read today is the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. And the middle of the Lord's Prayer, so the middle of the middle of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the central idea of the whole thing is these four words, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. You know that the middle of the middle of the middle of the first five books of the Bible is the Day of Atonement. This is what the Bible is pointing to. The sacrifice that covers sins. That Jesus, by his body broken on the cross and his blood poured out for us, gives us a gift of righteousness. That when we fail, when we, when we mess up, when we're, we're not living up to what we know we're supposed to be doing, Jesus says, it's right in the middle of the middle of the middle of everything. He taught us a prayer to call out to our Heavenly Father who loves us to say, would you forgive us our debts? And Jesus paid the debt in full. His body and his blood for us. So when we take this together, we're reminded, we're reminded that in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. He has given us righteousness. And now we get to, as Jesus puts it, we get to practice the righteousness we already have. To live according to the grace he's already given. So the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. His body broken to give you wholeness. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your broken body. Broken on that cross so that I can be made whole. And after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, that it is his blood that atones for our sins. 
so that we could be made right in God's sight. Let's take the cup together. We thank you, Jesus. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to forgive us our debts and giving us access to make that request anytime we need it. Lord, today we ask, forgive us our debts and help us to walk in righteousness with you. Give us pure hearts so that we, Lord, will not just live the way you have taught us to live, but to also have hearts that are renewed and transformed to be motivated by the things of God, to be motivated with purity and holiness and righteousness as well. God, make us a people who are complete. Make us a people who are whole, Lord God, and let that be a light that shines in dark places. Lord, give us strength as we go today. Give us strength as we uh, live to serve you and love each other and reach our neighbors with the good news that has changed our lives. God, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you.